This is Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello folks, this is Ben, this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Most of you will already be familiar with that fact. Uh, This is episode 130. So if you are new to the podcast for some reason, welcome along. And uh, you've got a lot of catching up to do. And welcome to all my regular listeners. This week, I'm very happy to say my guest is the fantastic Tom Craig. And I will introduce Tom properly in a minute. Might do a little bit of housekeeping first of all. All the usual things. Please, uh, if you do like the podcast, go over to iTunes and give it a good five-star review. Uh, or just a five-star rating will do. But um, say something if you can be bothered. Uh, only take a few seconds. Uh, if you want a Squarespace website, I will do one for you. That's about all you can say about that, really. I, there's no point in uh, really expanding on it. Oh, I'll do it cheap. Uh, I mean, not cheap, but cheaper than most people. Oh, man. Uh, it's lockdown. It's getting to me. It's getting to all of us, I imagine. Hopefully you live in a country where there's a responsible adult in charge, or hopefully a whole team of responsible adults. And if you are lucky enough to live in a country like that, um, then all I can say is that's fantastic. And clearly you don't live in the United Kingdom or the United States. But the rest of you, I imagine things are going relatively well. Anyway, I won't get into it. Otherwise, people will get cross with me. So before I continue, uh, let me just say, as always, that this episode of podcast is brought to you by the Charcoal Book Club, the first and only book of the month club dedicated exclusively to photo books. And each month, Charcoal works with the most respected names in contemporary photography to select a first edition monograph that is a must-have for every collection. Each book arrives signed by the artist along with a note card and a print from the guest curator with free shipping to the US, Canada and the UK. Past curators have included Alex Soth, Mark Steinmetz, Andrea Modica, Todd Heido, Ron Jude, and many others so out of those five names three have done the podcast still want to get Soth on at some point I I will I will I really hope I will and Ron Jude love to get Ron Jude on as well that may happen at some point but I digress all that along with members only pricing in the online bookstore and more makes the Charcoal Book Club the best and most exciting way to stay up to date with essential work in contemporary photography so just as a little example for instance the last couple of books I've had from Charcoal Centralia by Polomi Basu Polomi of course been on the podcast that is now sold out I I gather from uh, her uh, social media messages so that's a tremendous well done Polomi good stuff maybe there'll be another edition at some point and the the April's book was August Song by Martin Bogren and coming next is Big Brother by Louis Quayle anyway that's what I've had to read of late from Charcoal Book Club and very glad of it I have been So British-born photographer Tom Craig began his photographic journey as a reportage and documentary photographer, working for clients such as Médecins Sans Frontières and the Independent Newspaper, before a commission from Vogue magazine to shoot a fashion story came like a bolt from the blue and altered the course of his career from that point on. 
Since then, Tom has travelled all over the world for both editorial and commercial clients, largely defying categorization by any specific photographic genre. His projects have spanned portraiture, fashion, travel and advertising commissions in over 100 countries, and his work has featured in the world's most high-profile international publications, among them Vanity Fair, Esquire, GQ and the Sunday Times magazine, and in campaigns for Louis Vuitton, Alice Temple, Mr Porter, Purcell and Oxfam. Tom is also well known for his long and unique professional collaboration and close friendship with the writer A.A. Gill, which spanned 25 locations across the globe until it was brought to an untimely end by Gill's death in 2016. Tom has either won or been nominated for British Magazine Photographer of the Year three times, exhibited for five consecutive years at the National Portrait Gallery, served as photographer in residence for the Royal Geographical Society, was named the Telegraph's Travel Photographer of the Year, participated in the prestigious World Press Masterclass and was awarded the Royal Photographic Society's Prize for a notable achievement in the art of photography by someone under 35. That wasn't recently, of course, that was a few years ago. So I've been trying to get Tom on for a while and of course he's incredibly busy so it's hard to pin him down but... Now, because of the coronavirus and the lockdown and all the obvious things that we're all going through, um, I guess he, like everyone else, has had no choice but to hunker down and uh, wait for it all to be over. So that meant that he was able to chat, of course, remotely. And here's the thing. There was a problem with the audio. There is a problem with the audio. I'm really sorry. And it's my fault because I did hear it at the time. I should have done something about it. Uh, it was Tom's headphones or the microphone in the headphones that was causing the issue. And to be honest, I was so kind of traumatized from my recent experience with Phil Toledano because, as some of you will know, uh, I had to abandon the chat entirely because of uh, internet problems at my end. I was kind of like, I didn't want it to happen again. Uh, and I was terrified that I was going to have to just bin the whole thing. And so I kind of figured the only way forward was to just really kind of press on regardless. So there is some weird kind of audio artifacts going on in the background. I hope it doesn't put you off because the substance and the content of what Tom is saying in this chat is really, really interesting. And I enjoyed talking to him so much. I am sorry about the audio quality. I hope you can just overlook it and focus on what he's actually saying. He was very engaging and very engaged and very interesting. And I'm so glad I finally got Tom on the podcast. I hope you enjoy this because I certainly did. So how how have you been with all this lockdown business going on? What's your mood like? Um, It's been reasonably buoyant, actually. I'm not sure when you're planning to broadcast the actual podcast, but I was thinking about how in many ways I didn't want to get stuck, you know, talking about uh, corona and the lockdown and the isolation and the reflection and all those things, because in a rather optimistic way, I hope that they're obviously all things that are going to pass. And a lot of the things that I've been thinking about and have to say on the subject of photography and photographers aren't necessarily relevant to the current times. So I'm super happy to talk about what's going on in the lockdown, but I don't know yet how relevant it is to, you know, the wider picture in terms of how I feel, um, you know, as a photographer and as a professional and where it's going to lead and um, the effects it's having on, you know, friends and colleagues as well. So it depends, um, I suppose, whether or not... um, we're talking about the lockdown because that's 
you know what we all talk about or whether or not it's something that you think is of interest to incorporate into what mm. we're discussing in terms of the wider picture today yeah no that's a good point i'm i mean basically it's both because i think obviously by way of a sort of uh kind of uh, introduction um it seems almost uh, perverse to ignore it and i'm always intrigued i'm always curious to know how people are getting on obviously so i was genuinely wondering how you are but no i'm uh, absolutely i'm all for basically carrying on as normal uh, as far as the conversation goes and i love the fact that you're saying that you know you have things to talk about because you know from my point of view i couldn't be happier tom so no absolutely i don't want to dwell on it um i think the 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 issue of people not having any work is obviously uh, incredibly important to at least you know kind of flag because for some people that's going to be pretty you know serious and maybe less so for others but um yeah that was the only reason why i really started with that as a as a subject yeah i guess we're all kind of experiencing it in very similar ways, but also, you know, individually. What were you up to before this all kicked off? Were you in the middle of some fun and interesting stuff that, you know, was kind of abruptly um, brought to an end? Yeah, I mean, um, just to go back on to, um, you know, what you were saying about Corona, maybe we should talk about, you know, maybe the general things and the kind of pathway or, you know, the work or, the the sort of where I've got to and how I feel and then if maybe we could then talk about how it, it feels like lockdown's the end of the journey do you know what I mean at the moment um mm-hmm. and so chronologically I don't know why it feels a bit unnatural to talk about that at, at the beginning of the story but um with regard to um work before lockdown it was very much business as usual and actually I was in Paris a few days before and seeing locations and doing casting for an advertising campaign. Um, I was in touch with an American client about shooting for um, rather ironically, a kind of luxury travel brand. And that was a campaign that was already cast, already storyboarded, locations were resolved. Um, I was in pre-production for three or four other kind of campaigns. So we were flat out really we were in a very kind of sweet spot you know you kind of get through christmas and you get into january and then the momentum picks up again and our diary was pretty much booked out i mean end of march april and a large part of may with things also coming in in june so i felt like from a studio point of view we were sitting pretty i often refer to the studio like i i employ uh three people in my studio And I consider it as a kind of entity. And by that, I really count on the people that I employ to come up with conversations and ideas and help me do my research and mood boards and suggestions for castings and locations. So if I ever actually refer to the studio, it's it's kind of me in a very general sense, but me with a certain amount of uh, help and support with the people that I employ that work there as well. But that's also like uh, a thing that's come, you know, reasonably late in the trajectory. It's something that I've developed over years to have people work for me full time. And it's something that I've found to be not not just helpful, but 
kind of invigorating and you know quite inspiring in a way to be surrounded by people that are very interested in photography and interested in film and interested in ideas and interested in the execution of ideas and to put yourself in an environment where that's constantly happening is uh, a sense of flow and it's a sense of momentum which allows for like daily life to be quite active and quite dynamic and actually it's one of the things that i would really recommend uh i know we touched on the word isolation with regard to corona but i think for photographers that exist basically in isolation in normal life i.e you know they're at home and they're digesting their own ideas and commissions and projects i think it's very hard you know not to have sounding boards and other opinions and uh voices with which you can kind of bounce around really but again um we were at kind of full tilt in the studio and we were pretty sure that we were going to get back to paris and finish this campaign which was the following week and then we knew there was going to be a big announcement by macron and uh, the client who was french was nervous and everything was in place to make a tv commercial as well as a print campaign and then he made the announcement and that was that you know they just um, shut the doors on it actually that campaign's been rescheduled now quite interestingly at the very beginning of lockdown they rescheduled it for may then they scheduled it for july and now they've decided on august so just in super practical terms you know that's sort of what the commercial world it's an indication is thinking about you know which is um you know lockdown for a month or six weeks followed by you know an unknown period of let's say three months before they consider it um viable to you know put the idea back in the diary for july and august just to go back to what you're talking about because really you're talking about um you know having the opportunity to sort of collaborate really with your with the people that work for you and your assistants and i and i do think you're right it's what an amazing lovely position to be in in a way but you've you've had to create a you've had to get yourself to the point where you can actually afford to do that in the first place i mean i was saying the other day i i get so sick of doing everything on my own you know it's, yeah. it just gets really hard sometimes and um yeah it must feel great to be in that position where you've got just people around who you know not only to help you but to throw ideas in and all that kind of thing how long has that been the case for you so I had a, an assist, a first assistant for eight years. Um, it was a kind of amazingly uh, collaborative and, you know, enjoyable and also very kind of loyal um, uh, experience having someone that was part of the team for so long. And um, uh, that chap, Hugo, he left about five years ago. And so I've, I've employed people uh, on a kind of freelance basis for certainly 10 years now. Mm. And um, I find it really essential to the working process. Uh, we do a real wide variety of different projects and campaigns and editorials and so lots of those projects are running in parallel and some of them require a lot of resources and some of them just you know a case of turning up and photographing someone in, in a hotel for example 
and they require less resources but because they're running in parallel there's a lot of you know what everyone understands to be pre-production there's obviously the production on the shoot and then there's post-production as well and i think if you're on your own you can only carry a certain number of jobs before you're kind of at maximum capacity and that's just talking in a very practical sense i think in a in in the sense of being engaged with other people and not feeling like you're always doing things on your own and being able to discuss ideas and exchange opinions i think it's uh it's it's really important that there is a whole other side to it which is um it's to do with putting yourself in uh, uh in a way of a professional and financially quite precarious situation and what i mean by that is once you invest in a studio and you invest in people that work for you and you invest in all the trappings that you require in a studio you've putting yourself in a position where you can't hide from a certain level of engagement with professional clients with agents uh with a, a with a kind of volume of work essentially so you're kind of uh upping the stakes to the extent that everything has to become a little bit harder faster sharper and when that happens i find that you tend to engage with the entire process of being a photographer in uh you know a slightly more kind of business manner which i think is really important I, i i think it's uh it, it's very difficult to uh, be on your own as a freelance sole trading photographer. I think it's easy to shy away from opportunities. I think it's easy to make the wrong decisions in terms of what you say yes to, what you say no to. But um, if you put yourself in a position where you've really created a business and that business needs servicing, and when I say servicing, I'm, I mean it needs the lifeblood of work. So it needs projects and it needs ideas and it needs creativity and it needs interaction then you kind of up the stakes to the extent that you have to then maintain those levels. And I think that's good for me. It's good for me as an individual. And it's also good for the people in the studio because it becomes a more dynamic space in which to work. It also separates your your life completely from other things like home, social life, domestic life, whatever they might be in your own personal situations you know and i think that that's important too and we can get on to the subject of like photography as a business or what's required to you know run a business or how one approaches photography as a business you know i think that we all love the slightly romantic notion that we are photographers and we are involved in photography first and foremost for the love of it but at some point, something else comes in, which is practical things. And those practical things are getting commissioned for work, carrying out those commissions, how you handle those commissions, how you get more work, how you, you know, what branding is involved, what clients are involved, all those nuts and bolts of actually running a business. And I think it's important to consider those things in the longer term, because otherwise it can just be. Uh, a, a romantic notion that can't necessarily last forever mm. because uh, it needs to serve itself. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so so many follow ups that that I could I could kind of um, come at you with from there because you, there's a lot of interesting points that you make. But I mean, um, yes, you create a sort of momentum, as you say, and and everything becomes a lot more professional. And you know, then there's a responsibility to keep keep moving and and keep the work coming. But do you ever kind of in a way do you ever feel in a way that you you know one becomes a victim of one's own success in the sense that you know, you're kind of on a treadmill to some extent. And even if you're loving doing what you're doing, uh, I mean, I remember, I can't remember who said this on the podcast, but, you know, someone was talking about how a certain friend of theirs, sort, sort of person who's very much in the same position you're in, very successful, you know, kind of doing a lot of commercial and editorial work, but was basically saying they wish that they could kind of take their foot off the gas and do a personal project or something, but it just couldn't afford to do that, you know, like, because, you got, you know, you're constantly trying to feed the machine, as it were, which is basically to pay the people that you, you know, that that you're responsible for. Do you ever regret sort of not, you know, maybe having the time to 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 do more more personal stuff on the side, as it were? I think there are all sorts of expressions in our world of photography that people love to use over and over again, and I think this notion of personal work is really one of them. And uh, I think a lot of individuals feel the burden of being expected to create personal work. And we all begin with personal work and we all look at, you know, the published works of other photographers that have taken them years to create. And we consider that to be personal work. And yes, in a nutshell, in an ideal world, you could do a certain amount of work over a period of time, and then you could turn off those taps and then do a certain amount of work that was more your own. And then when needs must, you could revert back to, let's say, commercial or even editorial photography as and when you wanted. But in my experience, it just can't really be managed like that. I think if you go at the industry in a certain way, i.e. you go after work and if you're successful in getting that work and that work is, uh, you know, coming in a way that's kind of thick and fast, then there's a new sense of sort of paranoia that if you choose to turn those taps off and you walk away from it, you know, will it begin again? And it it can't necessarily continue to begin again all of the time. So I think once you get up to a certain speed and you get a certain workload and you demand that workload from the people that help you and advise you, like agents and agencies and clients, then it's kind of a case of, well, you've made your bed and now you have to lie in it. Mm. And um, it's one of the most profound dilemmas in our working lives, for sure. But it's definitely not something that I regret mm. because I, as, as an individual, I like to be surrounded by opportunities and conversations and um, the idea of work and executing work and planning work and creating work. And I think that uh, a lot of the commissions that come to me, they help create that kind of 
those satellites around me that I enjoy dealing with and I enjoy tackling. And I think uh, I'm not necessarily that solitary as a creature um, and I'm not necessarily that patient as a creature to the extent that I'm very well suited to going somewhere on my own for three months or six months or even a longer period of time and carrying out a body of work that I would deem to be, you know, extremely thorough, very considered and ultimately, you know, uh, that body of personal work. Well, there is something that looks to me like, you know, it sort of counts as a, a personal project, and that's a, 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 your sort of exploration of Englishness. I think you're calling it Empire or Albion. Um, is that an ongoing thing? Because that, that seems to me like something that you're doing, you know, very much off your own bat and as a kind of sidebar. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I can um, talk about, uh, I gladly talk about in, in the context of um, some of the other things that I was planning to say, um, which are based around uh, the idea of, you know, discussing individuals and their own work, their own personal work, and actually the distillation of that work. And it, it's something that I don't always find that easy to put into words, but ironically, I say that and then there's a long pause. But um, I, I'd like to talk about this notion of, of distillation. And distillation for me is the idea that any individual, any photographer, any artist, any writer, any painter basically takes elements of their own life experience and essentially what they're doing is they're distilling it down and distilling it down into a very fine point. And it's the sum of many broad parts, but those parts are unique to that particular individual. And it, it's only something that that individual can do. So in the case of the ongoing project, um, which is based around the eccentricity, really, of British life and what Britishness is. It's just something that I consider myself. You know, I consider what it is to be British, what it is to be British in the contemporary kind of times. Um, who has gone before me in terms of photographers trying to represent Britishness? And it's ultimately my interpretation of that. And... Um, I'm not sure I'm making my point as clearly as I'd like, but it's one of the things that I really want to discuss today, which is this idea that I believe that photographers and also aspiring photographers should never feel like they have to conduct the work of someone else. It's much more important to think about the things in their own life that resonate with them about their own interests, what they're drawn to, why they're drawn to them, and then ultimately executing photographic work that's based on that set of personal feelings and parameters that comes specifically from that individual. And I think photography at the moment is in uh, a very strange place. And one of the notions that I'm kind of interested in and almost consumed in 
is this notion of voice. And people talk about it a lot, whether or not a photographer has a voice. And I would expand that word into language even. And, you know, once you, anyone, as an individual has a language, then within that language, there may be a dialect, which is specific to that individual or that region. And then within that dialect, there is a voice and a voice is generally specific to an individual. And what I'm getting at is a language comes from where you originate, where you're born, what you're taught, what life is like at home, the things that you learn from your parents, from your school, your immediate vicinity, the influences that are on you and around you as someone that's in their formative years. And that can ultimately be refined also uh, into you know, a dialect. It, it, it's basically a way of talking or um, a sound that you create that's very specific to you. And then even more than that, how you express yourself. And what I'm trying to get at is that we all end up with a very specific voice, but that voice is unique to each individual. And we should learn in many ways, I think, to listen to what those influences are, the things that did have a profound effect on us, whether they were mentors, whether they were muses, whether they were individual photographers, whether it was an exhibition, whether it was music, whether it was theater, you know, whether it was a particular piece of film or a director, all those things funnel into this machine. And this machine is part of the distillation process. And what you end up with as an individual, that's your lot, basically. That's your jam. You know, that's your juice. They're the things that really kind of get you inspired, that get you fired up. They're the things that you're genuinely interested in. And once you have those things, and of course, we all have them, but in slightly different ways and in a different manner, we should then draw upon them. And whatever we create, whatever form of art it is, it should be true to those influences. Because if it's true, then you're being in some way honest. You know, and I think that kind of truth comes through in the work of individuals that are just really reacting to their own self and their own feelings and their own distillation. And there's all sorts of people that I'd quite like to, you know, discuss as examples where I could talk to you about a very particular photographer and the kind of images that that photographer makes and why I think they make that, why I think they make the work that they make. And it's essentially because they've got to a point in their working life where the images that they take are really just 
a visual form of their own character. And for me, it's a really huge point. And it's something that I've really thought a lot about. And I've thought a lot about it during this kind of odd period of lockdown and isolation. And I believe that what's happening at the moment is there's such a huge tsunami of kind of work that's being generated. And we know why. We know the reasons, you know, whether it's to do with digital, whether it's to do with things being online, whether it's to do with telephones having cameras. There's tons of reasons why we're inundated by imagery. But I believe at the moment, if as a young photographer you're coming to the party, it's a little bit like you're turning the dial on the radio. And as you turn the dial on the radio, you hear classical music and you hear pop and you hear dance music and you hear reggae and you hear all these noises and all these sounds. And when you stop turning the dial, perhaps you think for a moment, okay, actually, that's what I want. That's the sound I want. I want to emulate that sound or I want to emulate that person's voice. And then you set about trying to compose your own version of that, or in our case as photographers, to do visual work that is like something that we may have seen or we may have heard. And I think it's time more than ever to like just turn that radio off, to walk away from that plethora of sort of influence and white noise and static, and maybe just internalize perhaps more so than ever and think about what those influences are in our own heads and when we start to identify them then i think the work one's own work probably becomes clearer and i think it becomes more obviously yours as an individual and i think ultimately that's the way that one understands a voice, I mean, one's own voice, and then finds a way to react to it aesthetically and technically and in terms of production and execution. And there are obviously many sides to any kind of working life. And I do have a side to my working life, which is people phone me up and they ask me to do projects and they have their own ideas about light and casting and location and technique. And I choose to execute those ideas because, you know, I'm commissioned to do that and I do enjoy doing that. And that's sort of in lots of ways separate to this individual idea of voice because the voice obviously should come through in the work that one executes on your own terms. If money was no object, if time was no object, if the cost of a studio was no object, if the cost of life was no object, like what would you do and how would you do it? And in lots of ways, I was more in touch with that as a young photographer than I am now because I have a much greater diversity of work that comes through my door now than I did when I was younger. And that's inevitable. But um, I don't know if that's something that we can expand upon and talk about yeah. more. I'd love you to, Tom, because it's so important and it's such an interesting uh, topic and it's very much, you know, something that, that comes up 
uh, from from time to time or comes up fairly regularly but one can never really talk enough about it so i'd love to hear you you know say say whatever you want about it really um you can certainly bring up some examples of people that you you were thinking of of to illustrate the point but also i guess the big question really you know especially for young photographers who are hearing you say this and and completely understand what you're talking about but the question is how do you actually do that like how do you make that happen because finding that voice you know using those influences to draw upon or those formative experiences to draw upon and then actually translating that into a uh, signature as it were that's the thing that suddenly becomes um, difficult to to sort of get get a grip on in a way if you see what I mean Do, do you see what I'm saying there yeah I see exactly what you're saying and it it's it's one of the classic kind of hurdles. It's the catch-22 of being a young, aspiring, and up-and-coming photographer is that you want to work, but how do you work without being employed to work? How do you make that transition between ideas and reality? How do you make that transition between being a student and studying and being an excellent student and then being a professional? They are all um, very significant hurdles that one has to cross but one of the things I would say is the notion of finding the voice and finding the individuality and finding your own path is never something that happens that quickly. Hmm. You know, it took me a long time to realize that. And, uh, you know, I still ask myself all sorts of significant questions about, you know, what was important to me. What were those influences? What did inspire me? And how does that affect me? And how does that allow me to um, conduct my own version of events? And um, it's really, really to do with this essence of sort of truth. And it's to do with this essence of like one's own sense of character and one's own sort of sense of personality. And I was thinking about um a few examples and i had a conversation with a colleague of mine who is a photo director of various magazines in new york and then various magazines in london and we talked for example about quite a remarkable uh what i would describe as old school fashion photographer who is a guy called arthur elgore and arthur took incredibly dynamic joyful alive images predominantly of sort of beautiful women in the pages of vogue often doing reasonably absurd things like playing a trumpet or going down the street on roller skates or you know really laughing as they came through the revolving doors of the Condé Nast building, eating giant bowls of pasta, riding a bicycle, pretending to fly a kite, you know, standing on a table surrounded by waiters in a French restaurant. I'm making some references there that weren't even his images. But there's a sense of real life and fun and a sense of the bon viveur in all of the work that Arthur did, as far as I know. And then I discovered in having these conversations that actually 
Arthur was not only like a charming, funny, engaging individual, but he was a man that spoke a number of languages. He was a man that apparently was a brilliant dancer. He was a guy that actually could play the trumpet. And in my mind during these conversations, I even had this idea that at sort of tea time on one of his sets, you'd hear this rattling of a trolley and you'd turn around and then someone would arrive with sort of drinks and martinis and gin and tonics for everyone involved. And it was all quite a kind of joyful event. Now, I don't know Arthur. I have an impression of what he's like, and I have that impression via his images. But when I started to find out more about him as an individual, mainly having these conversations with people that loved him and worked with him over years, I discovered that he seemed to be a man that actually was quite a lot like his images. Mm. And that made me love the images even more. Now, for the sake of this conversation, I would never suggest to someone as a young photographer, right, what you've got to do is you've got to go and learn the trumpet. You need to be able to speak French and you need to make a really good pasta sauce. After that, you should learn to roller skate yeah. and have an amazingly charming way with women. And once you've done that, you're going to take pictures that, you know, feel like they're full of the joys of spring and life and the rest of it. Of course, no one should set about to become Arthur. You know, whoever Arthur is, you can replace the names of these people. But what they should do is they should consider their own personal interests. And people have their own full smorgasbord of unique and personal interests that are absolutely their own. So there are people that we know and that we've met who are quite dark psychologically. They're totally meticulous as individuals. They don't like socializing. They're very precise and careful and studied and considered. And if you look at the work of an individual like that, it will reflect those personality traits. And I think that is to be celebrated. And of course, in old-fashioned terms, I have these impressions of what these photographers are like. Like there are people that I've met and people that I know who are photographers. And there's individuals that I massively admire as artful, considered, successful, intellectual, inspiring photographers. But I have an idea about each of those individuals in terms of who they are and what they're like. And I have that idea through their images. And I think that's a really interesting concept to put personality, to put individualism, you know, to put one's own preferences first before the work, because the work will follow. And some of those individuals that I'm talking about are people like Irving Penn. I mean, for me, arguably the greatest photographer of all time, incredibly curious, in, curious in, in, in terms of the way that he went out into the world and decided to photograph people that were going to work or tribes people, 
individuals on the street. But perhaps more than that, when uh, Irvin Penn came back into his studio, he was incredibly meticulous about how he went about his business. But not just meticulous, very powerful in how seriously he took that work. Like it wasn't a joke. This wasn't a thing. Being a photographer wasn't a thing to be cool, to be done, to want to be a photographer. Here was a man that was kind of plying his craft in a way that was in pursuit of perfection. And um, I was reading a number of interviews and extracts from all sorts of people in the run-up to us having this conversation today. And I saw this incredible quote, quote by Diana Vreeland that said, Irving Penn's studio was a cathedral and David Bailey's studio was a nightclub. Now, I hope we'll come back to that quote. But when Irving Penn was working, you weren't allowed to play music. You weren't allowed to smoke. Fortunately for him, he worked predominantly before the days of mobile phones. God forbid you'd be sitting on your phone in the back of the studio scrolling through Instagram while Irvin Penn was working. It just wasn't allowed and it wasn't done. And I think once you entered that domain, it was real business time. You were looking at things and you were making decisions and you were being discerning and you were going through a process that ultimately ended up in creating some of the greatest images of all time. And he was able to do that because that was his level of intelligence. That was his level of application. That was his dedication to sort of detail and to form and to light. And that's one of the things that I want to impart today. These aren't necessarily all things that I adhere to because maybe I'm not as meticulous or as focused or as single-minded as someone like Irvin Penn was because he was incredible at what he did in that respect. But the things that he believed in filtered down into his images. And I think if we skip from one great to another and you go to someone like Richard Avedon, I'm not sure Avedon would say that photography was his first love. I think he would say that theatre was probably his first love. And once you know that Avedon loved theatre and you look back at his pictures, you start to see the theatre in his imagery. You know, and I was lucky enough to be, I was photographed by David Bailey and he was one camera, one light, totally in my face, completely chatty, funny, obnoxious, alive, unsettling. And in the end, he took this picture and I felt like it looked like a Bailey picture. And the reason it did was because it was his show. It was like his distillation. And whether he was photographing, you know, the lead singer of the Rolling Stones or a gangster from the East End, his application to that individual and his application to that scenario was his own. And that's what I think a lot about. At the moment, I think a lot about exactly that. It's like, what do you love? And how do you ultimately 
translate that into an image. And mm. a camera is such a weird thing. You know, it's just this inanimate box that sits between you and me. And I can choose to operate it in a scientific way, in a random way, in a free way, in a way that likes light, in a way that likes color, in a way that's macro. They're all my choices. And I think that it's much more interesting if those choices are your own, very purely your own, rather than be the choices based on this huge pyramid of decisions. And the pyramid of decisions is, right, I want to be a photographer. Being a photographer sounds like a cool job. Photography is great. I enjoy taking pictures. So how am I going to do it? Okay, I'm going to kind of look at loads of images. I'm going to look at the research. I'm going to see the stuff that's coming out. I'm going to work out how to do it. I'm going to cast someone like that. I'm going to take them to this space. I'm going to shoot them in that way. And then people are going to realize that I'm capable of taking an image. And then maybe they'll pay me to take an image or they'll commission me to take an image. Now, for me, that's totally the wrong way round. And if it's possible, and if we're still talking about this idea of like, what is the message for like a young person? It's like, don't worry about what anyone else is doing. Don't think about it. Don't even look at it. It's totally irrelevant to the work that you should really produce as an individual. Because if you want to find your voice, then it's there. You have a voice. It's just a question of how you translate that into images. And I suppose if it helps, I can go on to talk about the things that I was very specifically interested in. And I took a camera and then I went to various places and I tried to take images and I tried to take images that were based on the things that I was interested in. Now, do they have their own voice? Well, I hope so. Will they continue to have a more refined voice? You know, I hope so. I can't say for sure on either of those counts, but the idea of just understanding like what really floats your boat you know what gets you going and just concentrate on that but within those thoughts start to incorporate a camera and start to incorporate making images and then don't stop considering like what that notion is like who am i what's my voice what do i like what am i really interested in and we, one of the reasons we see such an incredible diversity of photographic work is because there are an incredible diversity of individuals who are interested genuinely in different things. And some people are interested in women, and some people are interested in cars, and some people are interested in light, and some people are interested in the abstract and in details and in form and in freedom and in dance and that's why when you take those individual interests and you start to distill them down into photographic form why we get this incredible smorgasbord really of photographic mm -hmm. work and mm -hmm. i think that that's one of the great beauties of it 
But I feel very strongly that there are so many people at the moment who are accomplished in working out how to make an interesting image. And they're doing it. And they're succeeding. And they're getting work. And they're doing brilliantly as photographers and as professionals. But when I look at the work, I don't form this imaginary personality around them in the same way that I do with some of the, you know, great historical photographers of the last century. Now, why is that? Well, I think it's because you have to have a life. You have to have those influences in your work. You have to accept them, the trials, the tribulations, the differences, the opinions, the passions, all of those things. And when you do accept them and you live them and you go through various things in your life and that filters into your photographic work, then that work starts to become yours. And then that work starts to become pure somehow. And the people that I admire most in a photographic sense are the people that have identified that sense of self. They have identified that kind of essence, you know, this, this purity. And they've allowed it to really influence the way that they use that camera and ultimately to make pictures. I absolutely love the idea of looking at an image and knowing or at least feeling like you know who made that image. But more than that, in the wider sense and the bigger context, I love the idea of having this idea of who that individual is. If you see the book of a work of, you know, the, the work of a photographer or an exhibition and you leave that experience thinking that you know that individual, then I think that's really profound. Mm. It doesn't really matter if you're wrong. It doesn't really matter whether Arthur Elgore plays the trumpet or the saxophone, or he doesn't play any of them. In my mind, he plays the trumpet. He's a great dancer. He makes the perfect pasta sauce. And he's absolutely charming and fearless when it comes to talking to a supermodel on a bicycle. And that is such an accomplishment, I think, because I don't even know him. But that's what his images give me. It gives me a sense of real self, and it gives me a sense of real identity. And also the other thing, it gives me a sense of real life. Of course, I don't mean real life. I just mean life you know yeah and that's what i love about it and i think that we often forget how amazing this bug is if you're into photography you're really into it and you love it and you love the individuals that are involved in it and if you've got that quite inexplicable attraction to photography and photographs then aren't we lucky mm. because there are these incredible men and women that have taken remarkable bodies of work and generally speaking each of them are stamped with their own 
incredible sense of individualism. And I'm just literally picking names off the top of my head, but Rinko Koichi, Martin Parr, Joseph Kidalka, Irving Penn, David LaChapelle. When I hear those names and I think about them, they're just, the work is so incredibly different and diverse. Mm. But each of the bodies of work are unique to that individual. And I think that's fascinating. And I think that's engaging. And I think it's powerful. And I think if anyone starting in photography can consider that first and not be debilitated by the fact that it cannot happen overnight, but it can happen over a period of time, and it can give you great pleasure and satisfaction to have a working life in photography and ultimately to build up a, a body of work that then can be a representation of who you are as an individual, mm. then what a gift. Yeah. I think it's an amazing challenge and a gift, and it's the most complicated padlock anyone could wish to try to unpick. But unpicking it is just part of the fun. Let's apply all this to, to you then personally, because I, I, you know, you've talked a lot about other photographers and I would love you to sort of fill in some of the blanks because you, you, you sort of offered to maybe uh, explain a little bit about some of the influences that you had. But in a way, I wonder how you think about yourself because it's in trying to kind of get a sense of what your career has been like. It's strange because, you know, you, you do so much, you, you do portraits and you do fashion, you do travel, you do ad campaigns. There's a real breadth to it. But in a way, you're a documentary guy at heart, aren't you? I mean, that's how you started out. And it seems to me that that approach and that aesthetic is still very much evident in the, the work that you now do, even though what you're doing is, you know, in a way, the kind of polar opposite to that kind of work or what we might imagine that kind of work was you know you very slick um commercial stuff can you just explain for, for people who don't really necessarily know that much about your history can you explain well where it started and how you transitioned from from you know one thing to another yeah i mean i'm gladly talk about that and i feel often a little bit like my last monologue that you asked me a question and i feel like I talk too much about it, but to shed some light on the things that I have been talking about, it just makes sense to talk a bit historically about the things that I was interested in and how that then went on to influence the way that I took pictures myself. And uh, again, you know, in the run up to our conversation, I was considering that. And just to paint a very quick picture, aged 15 uh, during my school holidays uh, my parents asked me if I wanted to go on holiday with them and actually I chose not to and I went and got a, a, a National Express sort of bus ticket and went on some weird backpacking tour with a couple of girls around the Lake District because I was just so keen to go and explore and sort of be on the road. And I was interested really at heart in travel and traveling. And it, it's something that has never, ever gone away. 
one year later, when I was 16, I bought a two-month ticket to interrail around Europe. And I went off and I interrailed around Europe. And um, about 18 months after that, as soon as I'd finished school, I went and lived in Kathmandu for 12 months. And when I did that, I really started to take more and more pictures. Um, and at this point, the reason I'm giving you these examples is that even when I look back now, it was quite young. I was quite young to be actually packing a bag and going off and on my adventures, yeah. not just on my own, but with friends. And I was taking pictures and I was creating this kind of, you know, I was testing the water. You know, could I do it? Could I go away from home on my own? And could I have those experiences? And was it safe? And was it interesting? And was it engaging? And how would I cope with it? And I loved it. And I was taking photographs all the time. Um, you know, the, the first camera I ever got, I was given for my seventh birthday. And I took pictures right the way through my childhood and my teenage years. But I never imagined that it could be a profession. And I started to consider this idea of a love of travel and then this increasing love of photography and how I could combine them. And so more and more I saw the camera as a passport to go on the road, to justify going on the road, to being a means to going on the road, to being a kind of distraction, to being anywhere, you know, public, any event, religious ceremony, you know, sporting event social event the camera gives you this reason to be there and if you don't want to fully engage with life and all these people you can sort of hide behind your camera and i think that can be quite reassuring as a young photographer as well and so it just started to make total sense to me that i could just go and travel the world and take pictures and everything was going to be great and it was just insane that i ever thought that that was really a, a kind of possible reality because it's such a cliche you know even for you know a young short-sighted person like buoyed by enthusiasm but everyone says oh i want to be a photographer i want to travel the world but that's really what i wanted to do and that was part of the kind of long-term plan i didn't really know how to do it that's part of the story later but i was ultimately interested in a documentary approach and um i know that i spoke in the interview about irving penn and avedon and bailey for example but they were never ever my photographic heroes they were people i learned about later in my life my photographic heroes were the people at magnum you know whether it was I mean, Joseph Kudelka is very high up my list or, you know, Robert Kappa. Or I ended up working for Christiel Perkins, who did one of the best bodies of work on the British ever. And they were the individuals that I looked up to when I was 17, and 18, 19 years old. And um, I ended up working in Magnum. Um, and that's another part of the story a little bit later on. But you're quite right. My interests from a photographic point of view at heart were in the documentary genre. 
And by that, I just mean that I wanted to go into reality. I wanted to observe it and I wanted to photograph it in my own way. And I've done that in many, many situations under the umbrella of British culture and British life. But I've also done that in, you know, over a hundred countries in my working life now. And I've done it in conflict zones and I've done it in places of famine and places of great hardship and natural disaster. But I'm not necessarily like an individual that just specialized in something very particular like that. Mm. I never wanted to be a conflict photographer. Right. I did work a lot in the humanitarian sector. I worked a lot specifically for Médecins Sans Frontières and also for UNICEF and for UNHCR. And I was working as a young, hungry, super enthusiastic documentary photographer. And I would shoot news and I, I learned, I tried to learn to shoot portraits because I was given those commissions by newspapers. But I was shooting as a documentary photographer. What happened in terms of the context and the kind of turning point or the bomb that went off was that when I was working as a reportage photographer, Alex Shulman, who is the editor of British Vogue, had an idea to get a reportage photographer to shoot a fashion story. Right. And one way or another, I got asked to do a shoot for British Vogue. And I had been in a conflict zone and I was working on my project for Médecins Sans Frontières. And two weeks later, I was on set with this incredible model, Amber Valletta. She was one of the muses of Peter Lindbergh and many other photographers with a stylist and with hair and with makeup, literally thinking, how the hell do I do this? And all I wanted to do was apply the interest that I had in making pictures as a documentary photographer. But whilst I made those pictures, I was going to incorporate this incredible looking woman who was dressed up in the desert in the middle of California near Joshua Tree. And I would try to observe her. And I think at first she thought that I must have been a total weirdo because she'd be ready to have her picture taken. And then I would go inside the motel and go up to a room and I'd open the curtains and I'd look down at her standing on the sidewalk and I'd start to take a picture that was really unremoved between me and her. But it was a picture that in my mind I imagined was observed. So I tried to create documentary pictures in a world that wasn't documentary but they had an essence of documentary they had an essence of observation they had an essence of the landscape of the light of the fabric of the place whether it was the airstream or you know the local bar or you know the car wash or the motel you know these things that were iconic to kind of you know, American on the road kind of yeah. culture. That was the backdrop. And then we had this individual. And then we had me who was trying to like piece, put the pieces of the puzzle together. 
So that was the kind and, of weird coming together of the of these two very kind of disparate worlds, really. That you know, in a way, it was a perfect segue because you know, like you say, she probably thought you were a bit weird, and for you, it was a totally different world to anything you'd ever seen. But in a way, they commissioned you to do what you do in a different context, so you could just you know kind of be reassured that you know you were there because they wanted something that you could bring which you know otherwise they just go and commission one of their many you know very high-end fashion people right so yeah that's how your relationship with with vogue began it it began like a bolt really from the blue and i was looking for a way to you know, find new experiences in photography, but it was an amazing opportunity that was granted to me. And the people that offered me their support in getting that opportunity were Alex Shulman at Vogue and Day Garnett, who was the stylist on that story, and is my partner, and Sophie Bodrand, who was the booking editors at Vogue. But one of the things I wanted to say about the idea of taking a medium format camera into the streets and shooting a girl, doing regular things, hitching a ride, going to the bar, hanging out by the pool, you know, checking in a motel, whatever it was, like very everyday normal things. And around that story, I was trying to construct documentary style images. I use the word style because obviously they're not documentary images. Mm. But I drew on my interest in documentary to create these fashion pictures that were in a documentary style. But one thing I think is really important to say is one of the reasons why I got the commission was it was quite early on in the digital camera revolution. And a lot of fashion photographers were taking fashion shoots into the studio. They were experimenting with digital cameras and they were really experimenting with retouching. And I think one of the things we often do is we often forget to look at photographic work, but in the context of other work that exists at that moment in time. And that's really crucial because I feel like a lot of people now shoot medium format analog in quite a lo-fi way, in quite a gentle approach, in quite an ob observational approach with low levels of production, i.e. normal locations, normal people, taking sort of fashion type portraits. But when I was asked to do that for British Vogue, the vast majority of comparable fashion work at that time was massively over retouched. People were experimenting with digital cameras. The aesthetic was quite clean and sharp and severe. The early incarnations of digital fashion photography were pretty horrible if you ask me. And then we were just tooling around. You know, we were going, I, we went to Syria, we went to the United States, we did a story in Hungary, a story in Cuba. I was very keen to take all the things that I was interested to do as a documentary photographer, but then unfold them in the fashion world. And that's ultimately where you've got this weird combination and the combination was my own personal influence, which was, at the time, I loved color photography. I loved medium format photography. There were a very handful of people that really influenced that. But I also 
love this idea of observation. I love the aesthetic of documentary. I love the idea of things happening in the frame that you couldn't expect, that you couldn't predict, that you couldn't plan or you couldn't produce. And so if someone was waiting on a street corner, you didn't know what was going to happen, but you did know specifically that something was going to happen, whether it was a couple of GIs walking past, whether it was a fire truck, whether it was a guy on a horse, whether someone would come over and interact in conversation and you could take a picture that was, dare I say it, more real than an image of just someone dressed up to have their photograph taken. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I did have the confidence as a sort of documentary photographer to know that something was going to happen. Mm. And that was really important. And then ultimately those things did start to happen and they did start to get incorporated in the, in the stories and in the imagery. So what happened was when they came into the public domain, they were fashion images, but they were done in this sort of freer, looser, you know, more observational documentary style. And whilst that seems unremarkable now, it was kind of its own thing mm. when I started doing that for Vogue. And um, that's what essentially helped give it, you know, that twist or that voice. Yeah. And did that, um, I imagine that really started to open doors for you once you, you know, once you started working for them. Did you find that to be the case? It totally changed my life. I mean, almost overnight. Because one of the things that I don't like in our business, and I'll never be able to change and I'll never be able to avoid, is people getting pigeonholed. Mm. So-and-so is a portrait photographer. They're a car photographer. They're a fashion photographer. They're good at men, but they're not good at women, whatever it is. I believe in my heart that if you're a photographer, you should be interested in photographing almost anything because that's part of the game is to make an interesting image from whatever you have at your disposal. And I think Gary Winogrand said, I photograph things because I want to see what they look like in a photograph. Yeah. And that's fascinating to me because it it's, it's kind of brilliantly put. And it's just part of the challenge and it's part of the kind of this tick. It's part of this puzzle. And um, I suppose what happened next was it was a combination of these things that I didn't want to be a fashion photographer, but I did have an interest in documentary. And when I did combine the two, um, there wasn't a lot of that going on in that sort of context. So a lot of people were then in touch with me about shooting other stories in the same sort of vein, the same kind of approach. But the other thing that happened was the advertising world loved to have images that looked like they were real. Yeah. So if you take a very generic scene that has been generated by an advertising agency that need to sell mobile phones because they've got a new tariff for texting or for data, then what you do is you get a scenario where you have six teenagers in a park and they're hanging out. But the reason they're all there is because they've been able to communicate. 
the messages we see in something like telecommunications advertising are always the same. They're always about remaining connected. They're always about being in touch. They're always about friends and family. And they're always about social interaction and, and the positive benefits of having a mobile and the tariff with that particular operator, right? So what they want to do is they want to make an image that everyone that can relate to. So you get six teenagers and you put them in a park and you give them a bicycle and you give them some food and you just see what unfolds. But the problem is most of those images look awful because no one can relate to them because they don't look real. Yeah, this is sort of so-called lifestyle it, photography as it's, as it's become. Yeah. <laughs> One of my least favorite words in, in the world of photography is lifestyle, but it gets used all the time. And the truth is those individuals in the, in the photograph, they have to be cast. You know, they have to be, you know, um, styled. They have to be directed, you know, they have to be orchestrated in a way that something can be real, but it can be open and it can be dynamic and it can be optimistic. And then ultimately you have to see the handset or you have to see the communication. So what happened was people started to recognize the fact that we could construct scenes and we had a view on style and we had a view on hair and makeup and we had a view on casting and locations and production so i was asked a lot to construct all sorts of weird and wonderful scenarios which we photographed for all sorts of you know big inspiring well-meaning companies that had their own things to sell and their own messages to put across and that is one of the things that flourished from that particular strand of the editorial work. Did you, at that time, sort of see that there was a kind of, this was a real inflection point in your career and that you, that you could, you know, you had a chance to build something, you know, that could be really quite amazing or was it less considered than that? Did you just sort of take take it one day at a time and just kind of, you know, jump off each bridge as you came to it? I think um, a lot of people talk about luck in the trajectory of a career. And they talk about s certain people having opportunities and certain people having more opportunities than other people. And I'm sorry that everyone can't, get the opportunity where they get a phone call and they get a job for British Vogue in the way that I did because it was an amazing gift. It was an amazing opportunity. But I think the secret to opportunity is kind of recognizing like what's a good one and what's n not necessarily such a good one and, and where to apply pressure, you know, where to really engage, where to make something sort of extra special, where to really go for it and maybe where to choose to ignore something else and i did have a feeling that there was a kind of sea change going on it wasn't lost on me that to get a call from someone like vogue and given an opportunity like that was a really wonderful opportunity but i did have a bit of a dilemma about whether or not i wanted to shoot fashion right um and so i go back to my earlier point about really disliking the notion of being pigeonholed and I just kind of tried to reassure myself that what I was going to do was make the most beautiful, most interesting, most colorful, 
most personal looking images I could under that umbrella. And that's what I tried to do. Mm. And sometimes I succeeded in doing that, I think. And I look back over the work and sometimes I didn't. And Mm. that's sometimes the fault of the photographer. And sometimes it's down to all sorts of other forces around us. Mm. But this thing of of avoiding being pigeonholed, which you you have done to an incredible degree, and it is a very difficult thing to avoid, is that something you've had to be really remain kind of vigilant about to not be taken down, um, to find yourself taken down a road that you never quite intended to go down. For for instance, in your particular case, you know, to ending up as a fashion photographer, I can see how the kind of gravitational pull of the business could easily you know end up doing that and then you suddenly turn around 10 years later and you're like oh shit i'm a fashion photographer but you you haven't that you haven't managed to to not to not do that you have managed to remain you know uh someone who does a, a great breadth of things and i just think that that seems to me that that can't be an accident you must have had to you know be very conscious of that it's not so much that I was conscious of it in terms of a long-term strategy. I mean, it's a very astute observation on your behalf. And I really appreciate you even recognizing that in the work because we never really know what one's work looks like from the outside looking in. But I really do rate and appreciate breadth and diversity in work. And I think if you as an individual photographer can do lots of different things, but those images still look like yours, then you're definitely achieving something. And I think the reason for this is somehow ingrained in what I was trying to say earlier about like what you're like as an individual, who you are as a person, and how you then apply that to your working life or your working practice. And I really, if a project comes to me, I really want to go for it. Like, I want to think about it. I want to obsess about it. I want to plan it. I want to consider the cameras. I want to think about the lenses. I want to think about the approach. And I really want to bring some life to it. Mm. I don't necessarily know exactly how to bring the life to that situation. If it's a big celebrity, that can be really difficult in a you know, very short period of time. And you do but do I that. still want to have a go. And I really want to, like, put that kind of work ethic somehow into the into the situation and um i i do also it's a it's a slight digression but i do also sometimes wonder you know in a case of me and you having this conversation which i love to talk about photography and i love to talk about the work in practice but i wonder sometimes well how can it help or can it help and i think about people that are um you know making their way in photography or considering a career in photography. And one thing I would say that is really applicable to your question is that you will encounter nearly all of the people in a relatively small business over a prolonged period of time. And I can give you an example. When I first went to Perpignan, we were like just clueless. And we were running around with our portfolios and we were giving out business cards and we were trying to like get picture editors to like pay attention. And I remember I had this amazing gimmick. I had these books of matches printed with my name and my 
phone number on the outside. And when you open the book of matches, there was a little tiny photo inside and there were six to collect. Aidan Sullivan from the Sunday Times contacted me a couple of years ago, said he just found one in the drawers of his desk, you know, which had, I must have given him 15 years ago, more. Anyway, we were doing whatever we could, do you know what I mean, to get an edge, to get listened to, um, to, to all this stuff. But a friend of mine was having a birthday dinner, and at the dinner was a wonderful woman called Cheryl Newman, who was the photographic director of the Telegraph on Saturday magazine, and lots of my friends and colleagues have worked for Cheryl over the years. And she was there at the dinner, and I, I found these photographs quite recently. But we had a nice chat. I hope that I wasn't annoying or obnoxious. I hope that I was polite. I hope that I was enthusiastic. I hope that when I got back to London that I wrote her a nice email to you know stay in touch. And the point is, probably 10 years later, Cheryl phoned me up and said, look, we've got a portrait. Do you want to do it? Or maybe it was less than that. And she gave me a portrait that was at the back of the magazine. And then when she gave me that opportunity, I really tried to make it good. And then gradually she gave me bigger and better opportunities. And then one thing led to another. And then I ended up shooting the cover of the magazine, for example, which I've sort of done for years. And I've really got a lot of satisfaction out of. But Cheryl often commissioned portraits. And maybe, and you could ask Cheryl this, maybe she didn't give the job to me because I was a portrait photographer. Maybe she gave the job to me because, you know, I didn't behave like a, a dickhead at the dinner. Maybe yeah. I was polite. Maybe she could see that I really wanted a break. Maybe she could see that it meant a lot to me. And so that's one specific example of someone that could potentially give me a portrait job. There were plenty of other people who were picture editors, photographic directors. There were art directors, art buyers. I had the same attitude, particularly through that period of my life, like in my mid-20s. I was just like so into it. My enthusiasm was like unquenchable. I, I might make a portfolio that wasn't good enough, but I was really, really trying to make it good. And if someone gave me a job, I did an awful lot to try to make it good, you know? Mm. And uh, that was just part of it. I just, I didn't want to screw it up. I wanted to make it good. I yeah. wanted to make it interesting. I wanted to make it alive. So ultimately to sort of try to answer your question in being civil and being enthusiastic and being constructive and staying in touch and being polite to a bunch of people that were also diverse in what they would commission that when after a few years I had proved myself and they started to give me opportunities they were quite diverse opportunities mm. and it's actually something that I'm really proud of it's this very peculiar double-edged sword and the double edge of the sword is, on one hand, I'm proud of the diversity. And on one hand, also the diversity has helped me survive as a working professional over the years. But the flip side is, it can confuse people looking from the outside in. Mm. Because they'll say to me, hey, Tom, like, what's that stuff about you going to the Congo, you know, and shooting in Sierra Leone and Palestine and Chad? Like, how can you do that? and shoot a fashion story for Vogue. And hang on, didn't I just see some portraits that you took? Like, are you having some sort of identity crisis? Do you know what I mean? Do you really not know what you want to do or who you are as an individual? And I'd be like, I know exactly what I want to do as an individual. 
But what I'm not doing is I'm not discriminating aggressively against a breadth of different opportunities because I was delighted to be asked and I was super happy to be in, you know, engaged with the task of making that commission good. Mm-hmm. And I didn't always succeed, but I really tried to succeed. Well, is that thing of always trying to go the extra mile, isn't it? It sounds to me that that's a sort of uh, principle by which you've gone about things. And it certainly seems to work, I think, when you do that, when you always, you know, you're trying to over deliver in a way. Is that something that you were conscious of trying to do? Yeah. I mean, I'm guilty of over enthusiasm. I'm guilty of over delivering. I'm guilty of talking too much about the process. I'm guilty of talking too much to clients great being stuff. too compliant i'm glad yeah. and and it's i mean it's all it's all wonderful it's it's so it's so it really comes across and it comes across in your photographs as well that sort of you know the, the enthusiasm for it and the love of it and i mean to be honest you know going through your instagram feed or whatever it does look like you have a fantastically wonderful and glamorous professional life and the pictures reflect i think your kind of as you well as we've been talking about from the beginning really you know this sense of it being you know i do get a sense that yeah i can see you in the pictures you did a shoot with you and mcgregor and um i remember i was in a library in stoke newington somewhere on a kind of cold and miserable december day and i was flicking through a squire i think it was and then there was this picture of you and mcgregor on a speedboat in the middle of the see with this massive grin on his face and i was like tom craig you bastard <laughs> you know what mm. a fantastic what a beautiful thing to see you know in such it's a kind of this kind of really grim and uh miserable scenario i was in and i was thinking tom craig has definitely got the best job in the world do you remember that shoot i mean i remember it well and just two things in response to that apologies for um you know kind of winding you up in that respect that was uh, obviously not no, it, intended but, no it cheered me up but but well it then then i take that back then if it cheered you up then i'm delighted but the other thing that i want to thank you for is just saying that you recognize you know some of the things that i'm talking about in the work and also in the breadth of work because it's very hard for me, and I tried to say at the beginning, it's very hard for me to vocalize some of the things that I believe about in photography and this notion of distillation of self to the image. It's very hard to encapsulate in a succinct and clear way for people to really like see what I'm trying to get at because I'm going about it in quite a long-winded and roundabout way. But the more we talk about work and the more we talk about how I want to work and like what that work is, I hope. And in the course of this conversation, I feel like you can start to see and 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 also recognize some of those character traits that in the photography. And if I talk in very general terms about those images on Instagram, you know, I love light. There's just something about it. If there's a juicy, fat last bar of light on my garden wall. At the end of the day, I appreciate it. I can't explain why. I don't want kind of, you know, it, 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 it's, it's not sort of sanctimonious. It's not artful. It's not intellectual. I just love a big, fat, juicy drop of light in any shape or form. And I also want to capture that in photography in a way that it's mine 
at that moment. So as if you're another photographer and you come back one week later, same street corner, you won't probably have exactly the same thing. You might have your own thing, but it might be different to my thing. So that's one element of it. It's like this love of light, of color, a sense of vibrancy. You know, I'm not like a pessimistic, dark, doer, introverted guy. Like if I was, I think my pictures would be totally different. But if someone's on set with me, everyone gets worn out. The assistants get tired. I get tired. Like the model gets tired. The production gets tired because we get up at four in the morning. We run up the side of a hill and the sun comes up and everything's super enthusiastic and we just do whatever we can and then we go and get breakfast and then we go again and then you've got to jump in the pool and then you've got to get in a pickup truck and then you've got to wait for the last light and you've already been working 14 16 hours and everything feels like too much and then the last light comes and a great moment happens and then someone chucks on this dress or jumps out the truck or you know rolls down a sand dune take your pick but it's like if the models weren't there if the talent wasn't there if like the entire production wasn't there. That's what I want to do anyway. I want to roll down the sand dune. I want to jump in the pool. I want to ride in the back of the pickup truck. So I'm just trying to like live life to the full. And I want to express that photographically. And I want everyone that comes on my set to understand that there are very few rules. But one of the rules is like, you've got to try to love it and just keep going and you know have as much fun and enjoyment and engagement with all of it as often as you can and as thoroughly as you can and ultimately hopefully that will come across in the images and if you can even see a modicum of that sentiment in you know the photographs that i've taken or in that instagram feed then it, that makes me really happy because that's what I want. I want there to be a sense of life, a sense of light, and a sense of joy in those pictures. Because God knows, I think we're all learning now more than ever that life's too short. And if you get the chance to roll down the sand dune, to dive in the pool, to ride in the back of the pickup truck and drink a cold beer when the sun's going down, just do it. And if you happen to photograph it at the same time, then great, do that too. See, you just provided me with an absolutely perfect out for this chat, Tom. Thanks so much uh, for chatting, Tom. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And it's been a real inspiration to, to listen to you talk. Thank you. The pleasure's all mine. Mm-hmm.